following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me if you would to Matthew chapter 13. Today we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, this is the other parable, so not last week. Brother Dan did a great job preaching on uh, the hidden treasure last week for us. Uh, the week before that, I preached on the four soils. And so that parable, the four soils, Jesus explains. His disciples are like, hey, what's that mean? He gives an explanation. This is the other parable we get an explanation for directly from Jesus. And I am very glad that he explained this one in particular because even with his explanation, there tends to be some conflation and confusion that happens as people seek to understand this parable and to apply it. Um, and it does take some careful thought to understand and apply the truth in this parable, but it is really not all that complicated once you break it down into pieces uh, and really just pay attention to what Jesus says, which is always a good plan. So I do, though, want to just take a moment together and ask the Holy Spirit to uh, help us have open ears and hearts to the word of the Lord today. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we are thankful for the promises of your word. Your word says that you are here with us, among us, that you dwell within us. The Holy Spirit himself has now made us the New Testament temple of God. And I thank you that with that comes an ability to understand things that we would not otherwise be able to understand. I thank you that you bring illumination to your people, that some things are spiritually understood, that without the new life that comes in Christ alone, uh, things stay confusing. But I thank you, Lord, that right now in this moment, we have the opportunity by the power of your spirit to lean into the deep well of the teaching of your word, to be changed and transformed and made more into the image of of Christ. Lord, help us understand, but not only understand. We don't want to nod our heads and walk away. Help us be doers of this word and not hearers only. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 13. So what we're going to do, the, the parable is verses 24 through 30, and then there's uh, another one in between, and then the disciples ask for the explanation. So we're going to do a little bit of jumping. So we're going to do Verses 24 through 30, and then 36 through 43. So I'm starting, Matthew 13, verse 24. Here we go. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn." Now, verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. I think it's interesting. You have the mustard seed and the leaven. They're asking about the tares in the field and, and I can get it. This is without Jesus explanation. <laughs> it's like, okay, what does that mean? All right, but he's going to help us thankfully. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, out of his kingdom, all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Amen. Praise God for his word. Amen. So we're going to focus on verses 36 through 43 where Jesus is explaining the parable. I'm not going to go through the first part and 
not just go right to uh, what Jesus laid out for us as going on. So there's, there's several things that, that we need to, even though Jesus spelled it out, we need to identify the elements here. What's, what, what all do we have going on in this parable of the wheat and the tares? Well, first we've got, we've got characters. We've got some, we could ask the question, who? Who is involved in the parable? Okay, and so first off, you have the, the sower, the one who sows the good seed. Okay, Jesus says clearly, that's the son of man. Son of man is a title that is for him. So Jesus is the sower. So we have that identified, all right? That's good. That's helpful. Jesus is the one sowing the good seed. And then he says, so the second who is the sons of the kingdom. And he tells us, those are the children of God, those who have trusted Christ by faith, that, that they've understood that they are sinners that need a savior, and they have trusted in Christ. That is how you go from being somebody that does not belong to Jesus or is not a son of the kingdom to a son of the kingdom. Then we have another sower. We have an enemy who comes and sows these tares. That is identified as the devil himself. Okay, So that's helpful. We don't have to guess about that. And this, this last one, that's all fairly straightforward. This last one is where we can start getting into some, some choppy waters. Okay, So the last character we have, or, or people we have listed here, are the tares, which are the sons of the evil one. That's the language we see in the parable, sons of the evil one. Okay, who's that? What does that mean? Well, as is with many things, depends on who you ask. But we're going we're gonna to work on doing our best to have a biblical understanding of what that is, the sons of the evil one. So here's a question. Is, is, are the sons of the evil one, is that everyone who doesn't love and serve Jesus? This particular title, sons of the evil one. And there are some that would say yes, uh, but I would say <clears throat> it seems at least to be more specific than that if we look at how this term is used elsewhere. Uh, when, when you go through the Gospels and Jesus is interacting with people, you never see him call prostitutes, tax collectors, all the really dirty, grimy sinners that everybody knew were dirty, grimy sinners. You don't ever see him call them sons of the evil one. That he never says that to them. But there are some people that consistently get that title. So let me read you this from Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people, for you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So who's he talking to? He's talking to self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, those that were adjacent to the teachings of God, that, were, that thought they had in their moral framework the totality of what it was that, that they sure should know about God, but they were, they were blind to the fullest revelation of God standing right in front of them in Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's, that's the first place we see that. This idea of the sons of the devil or son, son of hell, and that's not the only place that they earned that title, or brood of vipers. You just, you just didn't see Jesus calling the prostitutes and, and the, really, the ones that, that knew they were sinners, and everyone knew they were sinners. They didn't get the whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, brood of vipers, son of hell, right? Like, can you, can you imagine me today trying to preach like this? I mean, Jesus just gets to say whatever he wants, and it's awesome. I can't run around out here and say, you know what, you son of hell? Like, I'm, I'm just, I, it's over. I, you know, I'm just glad Jesus did, so I can just say, look at what Jesus said. You could argue with him. Have a great time. We also see this language uh, from the Apostle Paul. So during his first missionary journey, we're see, we see that recorded in the book of Acts. I'm going to read you a, a somewhat lengthy piece of scripture here, but it's going to get us down to being able to define, I think, with more precision uh, what, what is meant by a son of hell or a son of the devil in this parable, okay? Uh, so this is Acts 13, starting in verse 4. So... 
being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Okay, so the big cheese wants Paul and Barnabas to come and, and teach him the word of God. But Elamus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Okay, so now we get this magician, this, this so-called whatever he thinks he is, getting directly in the way of the word of God, the good, the, the good seed of the word of God, which is what the other parable taught us, the four soils, from getting to this proconsul, okay? Uh, so, so he's trying to turn them away from the faith. Verse 9, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him and said, you who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who led him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. That's really interesting. Uh, so I guess Jesus or Paul can run around calling people sons of the devil. Uh, I'm, I, I guess I just need the Lord to give me... <clears throat> express permission, because <laughs> uh, I, I, I just haven't used that one yet. So if, if we're looking at what we just saw, let's ask the question again, who are the sons of the evil one? And I think as opposed to, what I'm not saying is, we, we need to be careful about this, uh, John is clear, it is, it is those who put faith in Christ that are the children of God. Okay? You, you do not become a child of God without putting faith in Christ. But this, this specific title tied to the, the tares and, and what's going on in the parable and this idea of being a son of the devil, okay? it seems that that title is reserved for those who are self-righteous, those who promote false religion and spirituality, leading others astray, those who persuade people to seek their hope, identity, or sense of meaning and purpose in anything other than Jesus. So those that are, are it, it's almost as if these people are actively working for the devil and against the Lord. That's, that's what seems to be pointing to, and, and it makes sense even as you break down the parable even more, because if you were to Look back, history records, we, we, we are fairly certain that the seeds that were, that were sown by the evil one in the parable, they were likely a seed called darnel. It's very well known. Uh, and it, it's a weed that looked identical to wheat until the last stages of growth near harvest time. And something interesting about darnel is that this weed was poisonous if it was eaten in large amounts. And so it was a common practice to try to sabotage a competitor's crop by sowing it into their wheat fields. There was even a point in Roman history where kind of, if you were like caught with this stuff, you were in trouble. Because it was well, this is, so this is one of the brilliance also of Jesus' parables. He's, he's so good at pulling out real life examples to illustrate these very deep kind of spiritual realities. And so this was something that the hearers would have all been very uh, familiar with. So what, what are we looking at? These, these pseudo-saviors and false idols, they can be really hard to distinguish from the real thing. And that's, that's the devil's game. He's not a creator. He's an imitator. He's a deceiver. Okay, And so he, he, he can't do anything original in his power. He doesn't have the power to create. But, but he's wicked and that word, if, if you trace down the root of the word wicked, it's, it's like how a wick on a candle is twisted. It's, it's taking true things and, and just, just tweaking it just a bit, which, which makes it really hard to distinguish. All the greatest lies in history had some, some truth woven in, or they were so close to the truth that it was, it was really hard to tell. That's, that is what that ancient liar, that serpent deals in. And it's why, oftentimes, unfortunately, his efforts are effective. 
But these pseudo-saviors, uh, they can be hard to distinguish. Here's an example. Moralism looks a lot like Christianity. Moralism looks a lot like Christianity, and so does relativism, actually. And they borrow a lot of the same language. You could have a moralist saying many of the same things a, a gospel-believing, Jesus-loving Christian would say about how we should act and how we should conduct ourselves. The Bible's clear. Faith without works is dead. There is a moral code that God has given us that, that flows from his very nature. That, that from, from the Ten Commandments forward, we, we can see, and it's repeated in the New Testament, there's, there's things God has told us not to do and things God has told us to do. And we should, if, if we have genuine faith, we will seek to obey those things. But that's the problem. Uh, the, the, the one issue is we could agree on all of that, but the problem is the moralist in their heart believes that their right standing before God is based upon their obedience to those things not upon grace that was given freely. And so it's just that one little detail, and yet it changes everything. Relativism on the other side is, if I could, if I could summarize the way it manifests itself most in, in 2023, particularly in the West, it'd be, it'd be the idea of uh, talking about, <clears throat> hey, there is, there is some kind of moral standard from God's perspective, and, and somebody's answer being something in, in the uh, area of, well, the Bible says God is love, doesn't it? That's the answer, right? Oh, well, because God is love and because the, the Bible talks about grace, that means nothing matters in terms of our, there's, there's no coupling of obedience and belief when it comes to what genuine faith in God is, right? So the moralist and the relativist are, could, and, and that's, the Bible does say God is love. That's a big deal. I'm, I'm way into that. That's important. That's a good truth. It's deep. I've been thinking about it most of my life, and I think I will be for eternity. And probably gasping for eternity as, as more of what that really means is revealed to me. But what, it, what, that, what that truth doesn't do is relegate all of the rest of biblical truth to the trash heap. That's, that's not how we understand what God is saying to us through his word. His word does not contradict itself. His word is perfect. God is not confused at any point. And so if, if we're confused, it's an us thing, not a him thing. And so my point is that just like that Darnell seed looked very, very close to the wheat, if, if you didn't know any better and you, you just... Uh, harvested it all together, and it all got bundled together, and, and, and this had happened, you, you, know, you start eating a bunch of that stuff, it can really make you sick. And, and then you're left wondering, well, what, you know, if you're a moralist, it's like, well, I was following the rules. Why am I sick? If you're a relativist, it's like, well, I thought God was love. What's the deal? Why am I sick? Well, you ate a lie. It was a cleverly disguised lie. It was really close. It looked really close. It even had, they even used some of the same words. What those words mean <laughs> is important. Which is why, if you think I'm persnickety about words sometimes, just think about the parable of the weeds and the tares and realize I'm right. Amen. <laughs> <clears throat> it, but it's not just moralism and relativism, guys. Uh, those, I use those because they are, they are so close and borrow some, some of the exact same language from the Bible even. But you've got all manners of false spiritualities, promising peace, prosperity, a sense of purpose, uh, from things like astrology. You've got you know, the New Age mysticism and stuff. We're going we're gonna to manifest things with our whatever, I don't know, um, you know, crystals and the whole deal, right? Like, and, and here's the thing. Uh, the devil is happy to uh, use what limited power he has to, to help you get some things you think you want if it'll lead you away from what you really need. And that's, that's the problem with a almost exclusively pragmatic approach to truth, right? It's like, well, this, this is what I'm finding works for me. What do you mean by works, okay? Because if, if what you have going on is not a vibrant connection to the God that actually made you and knows how all this works best, then, then you're, you're eating Darnell, and it's, it's go, you're going to get sick. 
It may not happen immediately. It might take a while, but it, it's coming. Because it's, it's only the truth of the gospel that makes the sick healthy instead of the other way around. All of this other stuff leads to destruction. We need to believe that. <clears throat> and so this, this is part of why we must be immersed. And I'm using that word intentionally. I'm talking about dunked in it all the time. Immersed constantly in the true gospel and in the presence of the only true Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. We can't, you know, having a couple toes in is not enough. Because this world's going to try to immerse you too. The evil one's going to try to immerse you too. Uh, you're going to be soaked with something. And we need to, for whatever our part is in that, we need to seek to and care about. Making sure the, that what we're being soaked in is real and true. And we're not being duped. Uh, I think if, if more people would, would set the whole paradigm up in their mind that when they disobey God, they're believing lies. If they could really grab a hold of that, I just don't know anybody. I've never met a single person that if I ask them, hey, how do you feel when someone lies to you? They're like, it's awesome. <laughs> like one of my favorite things is when people deceive me. Oh, could you tell me a lie right now? It's never, I've never ever run into it. We all feel angry when we're lied to. And I just wish we could get some of that up under us. We could get, I wish we could get tired of, of, of eating Darnell because we, we bought another lie and having to deal with the, with the sickness that comes as a result of it. Uh, if, you know, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires, but that's really got more to do with us being angry with each other. <laughs> it's okay to have some righteous indignation about the lies of the enemy and the damage that they create. You should be, you should have some fire up in your belly about that. And not just for how it's affected you, but how it's affected those around you that you love and care for. <clears throat> so that's who, okay? We've got those kind of four characters. Now, let's look at where, okay? Because this is another part that gets a little bit confusing. Uh, Jesus says the field is the world. And that's, I understand why people get confused about this because that's not what I would have expected him to say. And, and what happens, this, this application, application of this parable, it does get confusing because it has been taught, and, and by some prominent people throughout church history, it's been taught as if the field is the church and not the world. And there's a difference between the two. Okay, and that can that can really cause that, that actually changes the whole way you would interpret what to do here, because when the servants say, "Well, master, should we go gather those up?" He says, "No, no, leave them, because if you try to pull those up, you may end up uprooting the wheat as well." And so, if if the field is the world, that's much different than if the field was the church, and and sometimes even I read a ton of commentaries and and even listened to some people talk, and it was like. Almost on accident, they would, they would in, in their analogies and trying to explain this parable, they, they, would, they would go from kind of the field being the world to the field being the church, as, as if there was no distinction, and there is a distinction. There is a difference because Jesus told us how, to, how those of us who follow him are supposed to operate within the household of faith. Okay, Let me read you Matthew 18. I know these are not anybody's life verses or favorite verses, but Jesus said them, uh, and so we need to get hip to it and, and, and at least try to act like we like it until we really do, because Jesus said it, okay? Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, now if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he's not listened to you, take one or two more with you so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a, and a tax collector. That means if this person is insisting on living as if they aren't submitted to Jesus, then the last thing we can do as the people of God is treat them like they're not submitted to Jesus in hopes that that rattles their cage enough to repent. The whole thing is about 
trying to restore them. We're not, I mean, I, I guess in, in some movements, probably some moralist movements, it, it's almost as if uh, there's, there's some kind of joy in excommunicating people or exercising church discipline, uh, just looking for someone to mess up so you can give them the boot. That's not the heart of what is going on here, the heart of what is going on here. And uh, we, we see that, you know, Paul explains in other places as well. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 5 in just a minute, but that there's, there, there's, a, there's a process and a seeking, and, and in, in all that we're doing, we are seeking for repentance and restoration. But you can't look at the parable of the wheat and the tares and say, oh, well, see, uh, you don't know which is which. You don't really know what's going on, so just leave it be. In the church, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the world, which is different. And Paul just kind of gets right down to it. In, in, in dealing with a specific situation in Corinth, uh, we see Paul spell this distinction out pretty clearly, okay? So uh, if, if you weren't excited about any of the way I explained it, see, see if Paul uh, gets you a little more excited, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind does not even exist among the Gentiles, namely, that someone has his father's wife. Okay, you understand what that means? You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So we're still, we're still looking in... in in dealing with people in this way, we're looking for them to repent. That's the hope, right? But the church isn't like the government, right? So if, if you decide, uh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do whatever I want, be in some unrepentant sin, I'm going to keep on doing it. I've got brothers and sisters that have said, hey, I'm concerned about you. You didn't listen to them. Then they, they brought a few more people to try to help to convince you, hey, man, you're, you're heading towards destruction. You're chewing a lot of Darnell, man. It's going to go bad. Can, stop, man. We love you. No, nah, I'm not going to do that. And then, and then they bring church leadership in and, and the authority, the spiritual authority that God has granted them to come and to, to deal with you and say, look, man, we love you. Stop. If you don't stop, this is going to hurt you. And then you've, you've ignored all of that. The church can't put you in Christian jail. We don't have one. We can't stick your nose in the corner. Uh, we can't charge you a fine. I mean, that, can we do that? <laughs> Somebody look into that. That could help. Might be a new fundraiser idea, <laughs> like the cuss jar. Uh, we're going to have to get into the Greek and see if we can come up with something on that. But <laughs> no, we can't do that, okay? We can't. There's one thing we can do. We can say to you, okay, you are living as if you do not have genuine faith because faith without works is dead. If you are unwilling to obey Jesus and his scriptures... And, and, and we've, we've pleaded with you. We've done everything we can to try to show you why this is an issue. Then we can't continue for your sake to pretend everything's okay. Because that's just us helping you eat more Darnell instead of wheat. It all should be done in love. None of it should be done in self-righteous indignation. And, and, and that's, that's a big difference. That's how oftentimes things like this go wrong. But in any case... Uh, he continues, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leavens that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the greedy and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person or a greedy person or an idolater or is verbally abusive or habitually drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. Okay? That is why it's important not to confuse the wheat and the tares analogy, parable, 
with, with that field, when, when Jesus says it's the world and not the church, that's, you see how that could become really problematic? Because if you try to apply the wheat and the tares in the wrong context, you end up disobeying what Jesus and what Paul expands on here, the teaching of Jesus, how this plays out, okay? Um, and so that's, that's, that's really important. Uh, the, the field being the world has some implications that are lost if we, if we just reduce the parable down to him talking about the, the household of faith. Or as if the kingdom of God is only the household of faith. Because that's the encourage. So that first part is, you know, anybody that read this parable was like, oh yeah, all that stuff about church discipline is garbage. Ha, ha, ha. And if I just burst your bubble and you're like, mm, I wish I didn't come today. Uh, now, now we'll go to some encouraging implications of the fact that the field is the world. The kingdom of God is wider than just the household of faith. God is in charge of everything, you understand. That's something you should be really happy about. That's something we should be really thankful for. The field being the world also reminds us of God's sovereign rule over all things. And it can help us understand perhaps the most puzzling aspect of this parable. And so that's, that leads us, we talked about who, we talked about where, and now we're going to go into uh, why. And, and what I'm saying is perhaps the most puzzling part of the parable is the instruction where the servants say, well, master, do you want us to go gather up the tares? That seems to make sense to me. And he says, no, leave them. We'll get them at harvest time. And then he goes on to explain that harvest, the, the harvesters, the reapers are angels, and the harvest is the end of the age. So that helps us understand also the, the, kind of the timeline Jesus is working on here. Okay, And that should help us to have a, a bit of a longer view of things, which can be helpful. So to set this up, I want to ask you a question. Uh, the, because the why is, to some, you could read this, like, why wait? Why, so what you're, you're going to let, you're just going to keep letting the tares grow, Jesus? Like, why don't, you, why don't, why don't we just fix it, okay? <clears throat> Here's a question. And, and I want you to, I, <laughs> some of you I know, you're going to be tempted to try to anticipate what the right answer is. Okay, I don't want you to do that, all right? What I want you to do, I just want you to instinctively answer, and it's okay. I'm not busting anybody out. I'm not calling anybody out, and, and we're not going to, you know, count hands or whatever, and everyone will be fine in the end. I promise. I'm not setting you up, okay? I know some of you still don't believe me. I don't understand what this weird psychological thing is or what happened to you. Some of you are not going to raise your hand, even though I'm doing all this. I know you're not, and it's, it's okay. I still love you, but I'm just, I'm not setting you up, Okay? I promise you will not be embarrassed at the end of this. Here's, but I want you to answer. <clears throat> How many of you just in general think, and, and the next thing is going to be you think it's getting worse. How many of you think the world is getting better? Instinctively, just overall, you think the world is getting better. Let me see your hand. Okay. Instinctively, how many of you think the world is getting worse? Let me see your hands. That's interesting. Okay. Here's why no one is going to end up being embarrassed. Because what I want to submit to you is that it's both. All at once. And this parable helps me see that. Jesus said the wheat and the tares are going to grow up together until when? Until we decide we're sick of tares? Or we decide the wheat is ripe? No, until the end of the age. When the Son of Man says, okay, reapers, now is the time. Now we're going to sort. Now we're going to winnow. Now, the good wheat is going in the barn, and all of the tares are gathered up to be burnt, okay? Now, when we say it's both, <clears throat> it does not surprise me how that broke down, because I, I also want to submit to you, the fact that the world is getting worse, and, and you might think this is mutually exclusive, but we, we have to change our thinking partially because of the parable of the wheat and the tares, the fact that the world is getting worse, I think, is easier to see than the fact that the world is getting better, partially because of the way just the world around us, particularly in the West, is set up, the way news works. You know, just, just think about all the data that hit you over the last week. You got bridge collapses, you got, 
I mean, this heinous thing that happened this week with the dad and the three children. And, and so you see stuff like that over and over and over again. And, and, and it's, you, you guys are all smart enough to understand. Bad news sells. Bad news grabs the emotions. Bad news grabs the attention. And so that, that tends to be when, when corporations purpose is to make money, they need your attention because if they have your attention, then they can put some ads in between the bad news they're giving you and someone will pay them for that. You understand how this works? It's not that complicated, all right? And to some degree, if you start to be conditioned to key in very closely on the, the bad stuff, it's kind of like me and my kids this last year, we've, we've started uh, going in the woods and uh, mushroom hunting more often, which I know sounds like a real hillbilly thing, but whatever, we like doing it. And we like being in the woods. So, and, uh, and we found a bunch, and, and it's been fun. So, but it's like, as you start to, you know, before we would hike all the time, and, and there's, you wouldn't notice certain things. But literally, we can't walk anywhere now. And the kids aren't going, Dad, that, there, look, there's a mushroom. Get your app out. See what, can we eat that one? You know, so they're like keyed into it, because they've now been conditioned to look for those certain shapes and whatever, right? And so we get conditioned to bad news and looking for bad things it can have kind of a pessimistic feedback loop that starts to get us really keen on that and maybe uh, at the expense of noticing some of what is good. So, and I don't fault any of us for, for the fact that I think if I was to answer instinctively without having thought a bunch about this, I would have also said the world seems to be getting worse. So just, I'm not coming down on anybody. Uh, <clears throat> but worse is, is easy, easier to see. To, to see how the world is getting better requires a bit of a wider lens uh, and, and probably uh, some work on defining good. <laughs> okay, uh, that's, that's important as well. So for us as kingdom people, uh, uh, us seeing the world getting better is not like, uh, you know, there's, there's more cotton candy in the world. The world got better or whatever, right? Some arbitrary thing. Our, our better world is going to be focused on kingdom progress, right? That, that the word of God is going forth and the people are coming so, to, to saving faith. So just think about this with me. Is, 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 was Jesus right about what was going to happen? That the wheat and the tares were going to grow up together? Well, I'm just... I am preconditioned to think Jesus is right. So if, it doesn't, if Jesus said something, and then I look around and my observation doesn't seem to line up, I'm now, I, I've been trained now by the Holy Spirit, thankfully, to go, well, I'm probably wrong, so I need to think harder. <laughs> I need to look harder, okay? Because if Jesus said it, I, I, he's, I haven't found him to be wrong yet. And, and I've been looking and listening for quite some time. So, all right, think about this. If the Lord tarries, and so... Well, it's kind of an old school word. If the Lord does not return, okay, uh, <clears throat> and current trends continue, what's happening right now, we will go from 2.5 billion professing Christians today to 3.3 billion in 2050. Amen. That's, that's a lot more believers. That's a lot more people potentially with us around the throne joining in the angelic chorus, declaring the holiness of God for eternity. That's a good thing. That's the world getting better. That's more people coming to know that Jesus loves them. That's good. Christianity is also spreading geographically. In 1900, the year 1900, 95% of all Christians lived in majority Christian countries, and much of that centered in Europe. Okay? That number today, it was 95%. So basically all the Christians were clustered together in small areas. Now it's 53% of Christians live in, 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 in um, basically primarily Christian nations, which those are becoming rarer and rarer. It's probably part of why that statistic's the way it is. However, what that means is we have more believers in more places. and there are Because if you, if you have 95% of the Christians all in one place... Yay, right? Like we get to have a lot of potlucks and, and that's cool, right? And we get to high five each other and that's awesome. And hanging out with Christians is great. And sometimes I wish we could just draw a little circle and make a Christian country. Please understand me. I, sometimes I'm like that, you know, Lord, maybe that's just what we need to do. Because some of these people out here be wiling. Uh, but, 
But that's but but isn't but did, Paul said in First Corinthians five. I, I didn't mean don't associate with the idolaters and the sexually immoral and the and the wicked, greedy people of the world. I didn't say that because then you'd have to leave the world, man. That's what he said. And apparently, we're not supposed to do that. I know some days it's like, Lord, are you sure? Because <laughs> this is crazy, but. Now it's 50, so it was 95%, now it's 53%. We, we, we are not, there's not only more Christians than there were in 1900 by a big margin, there, it's, there's, we're also spread out farther. That means more people that don't know Jesus are coming in contact with people that do. Which, if we're doing anything close to what we're supposed to be doing, will matter. And it will have an effect, okay? Uh, here... Here's something not in my notes. Just this is a thought the Holy Spirit just gave me. Also, here, here's <laughs> the God is in the business of working all things for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose, and doing all things for His glory. And there is nothing in the parable that says God can't make a tear into wheat. You're like, well, I don't know. Okay. Quick question. If, if everyone, let's say that we were using this parable as our framework for looking at humans. Let, let's try to go back to the first century with our imaginations and, and, and let's pretend we're believers in the first century and we're looking at Paul. We're looking at Saul, pre-conversion. Murdering Christians, Saul. Out here hunting them down. Don't you think we would have gone, that's a tear. He fits the, I mean, he's the textbook definition of a tear. Out here leading people astray. He's a moralist. He's self-righteous. He's a Pharisee. He's literally one of the ones that Jesus said, you're the sons of the devil. And guess what? He ain't now. That may have gone better in the next section, but whatever. Whatever. It hit me right then, so <clears throat> so we're spreading geographically. Uh, 93 million Bibles will be printed this year compared to 54 million in the year 2000. The Word of God is being translated into other languages at a rate never seen before in church history, ever. Yeah, technology's sketchy, I get it. Like, all the AI stuff, I, look, man, I'm with you. There's all kinds of creepy, weird things happening with technology, and some of it's sketchy and scary, and like, what are we supposed to do with it? I don't have all the answers to that. Here's what I do know. God works all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And because of technology, we are translating the scriptures into more languages than we ever have before. Whereas some poor, like, hardcore guy in the past would have had to sit down and give half his life to translate the Bible into some language, you know, we can do it like that now. We just got to find the language. That's the only problem is, okay, what's your language? All right, let's get to understand that. Now we got computers that can get the job done. So you see what I'm talking about? Wheat and tares, good and bad, growing up together. That's, that's why we don't want to get into like legalistic, moralistic uh, frameworks in the way we're in, interpreting the world, Okay. There are 138 million professing atheists in the world today. 138 million. That's down from 165 million in 1970. 138 million atheists today, 165 million in 1970. But think about it. There's literally double the amount of people on the planet today than there was in 1970. We've doubled. It was like 3.7 billion in 1970, roughly. Okay, so that makes that number matter even more, right? As a percentage. Look, I didn't come for a math class. I know, I'm not that good at it either, but that's not that hard, right? Okay. It's good news. Africa and Asia are the two fastest growing regions for people coming to faith in Christ. That's something we have to hear. Guys, the field is not the church, the field is not North America, the field is not the United States of America. The field is the world, and that's why to, sometimes you have to pan out wider to see that the good and the bad are growing together. I know stuff is janked over here, okay? 
And I know, looking at the trends of kind of what's going on as far as faith and all of that, in the U.S. right now in this moment, it's like you would have a lot more evidence for the side of things are going bad, okay? But we got to have a global perspective. We also have to have a longer view of things, okay? Because sometimes things move in a cycle. Sometimes, sometimes people and even whole cultures eat enough Darnell and puke their guts out long enough that they're like, you know what? Let's try wheat. And I'm for that. I'm all the way here for that. And I hope you are too. God can do anything at any time. The, the, the story's not over. It could go the other way. And, and, and if that leads to more global glory for God, I got to be there for that. He's appointed the time and place where we live, right? And so we, right here in this moment, in this place, we're going to keep being wheat. And what is that wheat supposed to do? It's supposed to grow. It's supposed to get a grain head on it. It's supposed to cast that out, take that seed, that disperse it, and multiply itself. We love God. We love people. We make disciples. Okay? What, what are we seeing in all this? The wheat and the tares, they are growing together. But those who stay committed to serving the devil and his deceptive destructions, they will one day be removed from the field. That day is coming. Now, I think the last question and maybe confusing part of this parable would be, all right, then why wait? And I think we've already answered that to some degree because the bad and the good are growing together. Okay, but to dial that all the way in, if you go to 2 Peter 3, 9, you'll see this idea. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness. He is patient willing that none should perish. 93 million Bibles instead of 50-some million Bibles. Right? An extra billion-plus Christians. And this puts us in a weird place, because I am as quick as anybody in, in just dealing with life every day to look towards heaven and like, Lord, can we just, can we just do it today? <laughs> you know, like, today's a great day! Come on! right? And that, that's, it's almost what people tend to do is like, they'll, they'll have that perspective or, or they'll be over on this other side of like, well, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not excited about the Lord coming because I want to I wanna have as much time as possible for as many people as possible. And, and here's the thing, like the, the Bible doesn't let us stay in those kind of simple bifurcated positions. There's a, a tension and a duality in the same way that the wheat and the tares, the good and the bad are growing together. We should have, right? It's, it's what Paul said, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That, that highlights for us this tension that we're called to live in, right? How do you live in the reality? Because this is the reality. You can, you can, if you don't like the tension, you can just decide, oh, I know, I know the Lord's going to come back uh, within whatever this time frame is. Well, okay, you can do that but you may very well end up looking foolish, as many people have. There's a lot of books on the trash heap of Christian history where somebody had the date pegged, right? How long ago? I don't know. It was a few years ago. There was billboards. They had a date in September or something picked out. It's like, come on, man. No one knows the day or the time. So how do you live in the reality that Jesus could come back before the end of this sermon? May it be, right? Some of you are like, man, that'd be really great. Uh, we could cut this one off. Uh, <clears throat> or Jesus could come back. It could be a thousand years from now or longer. How do you live in that tension? What a lot of people do is pick one they think is more likely and, and then live accordingly. No, man, there, there is a way through the gospel with the help of the Holy Spirit to live with the reality that both of those are possible. And you might be like, well, that's mean. Why wouldn't God just, don't you understand that that tension is part of him loving you, man? It puts you in a position of, of constant need for him. Because if, if you think he, you, you can really get in a self-sufficient uh, place if you, if you think you know everything that's going on. Oh, I've got, all the, I've got all the data. I've got all the details. Now I can use my intellect and plan accordingly. No, you're going to have to trust him. And part of why he hasn't done it yet, part of why he, the, the sky hasn't cracked open and you haven't heard the trumpet blast, is the Lord is not slow as some count slowness. He is patient, willing that none should perish. Why didn't he come in 1900? 
Because there are billions more people today that are going to join us in eternity around the throne than there were in 1900. Billions more. Hallelujah. Not to mention, quick scan of the room, none of you would have even been alive. So (laughs) you wouldn't have had a chance to feel a type of way about it, okay? Hallelujah. That's, That's why he says to those workers, no, don't, don't go fool with them. A day's coming, and it'll all get sorted. But your job, Christian, is not to go into the world and try to sort it. You do what wheat does. Wheat is supposed to grow. Wheat is supposed to multiply. And wheat is supposed to provide good for others in the name of Christ. The Lord will take care of the tares out in the world. What, 1 Corinthians 5, what business is it of mine? to judge outsiders. But in here, as an act of love, we do hold each other accountable. Just remember that, okay? And and if you don't like that, man, every time church discipline comes up, every time holding each other accountable in a real way, like an authentic way comes up, if you're like, "Mm, I don't like that, I'm just submitting to you, man. Would you just pray? Ask God to help you get to where you like it and desire it. Because that's really, that's, that's the safer place to be. That's the wise place to be. Uh, if, if, if that whole idea makes you bristle, there's, there's work that needs to be done in your heart that shouldn't cause you to bristle. You should be really thankful there's people around you that would love you enough to uh, say something that might be uncomfortable. That's, that's really what love looks like. Uh, the last thing I want to say, and this, this will be quick, we're almost done. As I thought about this parable and the fact that it was landing on Father's Day, I think there is some application. Um, And I think it's to men broadly. But again, if you've been around here any amount of time, you know that, and you don't have to believe this, but my personal opinion is that the scriptures would lead us to the idea that whether you have biological children of your own, you are called to be a gospel father in the family of God. Uh, And so... This, this call is to all men. And, and because, whether you have biological children or not, uh, I believe that the responsibilities within the household of faith are the same. The call for men to, to stand up to evil is the same. Uh, kind of across the board, re- regardless of <clears throat> whether you have biological kids or not. So, um, just quickly, this parable in addition to everything else we've seen, this parable is a reminder to us of the very real presence of evil in the world. Uh, most of you have probably heard the quote that the greatest lie the devil ever told was to convince people he didn't exist. Okay? The devil is real, and he does come, and he does sow counterfeits. Everywhere the Lord is doing the work of the kingdom, everywhere the Lord is sowing good seed, Satan is coming behind and he's sowing tares. There is an evil one, There are evil people that work with the evil one. And and I want to encourage you and challenge you men to take your place as protectors in the family of God. To acknowledge that this there, there, there are many analogies within the scriptures to help us understand spiritual reality. And some of them, some of the analogies are warlike on purpose. Uh G.K. Chesterton once said that a true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. That is the orientation of a man of God. We fight not because we hate what's in front of us, but because we love what's behind us. Now, in order for that to operate correctly, you have to first love what's behind you. And by behind you, I mean, that's that's what I'm talking about. Simply because you are a man of God, the expectation of Christ your king is that you would stand up and get in between evil and the family of God. If evil is going to try to bring destruction into or upon somebody that is within the family of God, you should not be able to see that and have a that's not my problem attitude. Scripturally, it is your problem. And you may not like that. And if you don't, I want you to pray about it and ask God to help you think about it more. Because a good soldier of the cross 
is not going to stand by and watch the devil do his destruction and, and be apathetic towards it. Can't do it. And, and here's what's crazy. I know, I know most of the men in here, and I can't think of anybody within this church family that if, if some physical person came into your home or came into a gathering here and wanted to do harm to the people here, I can't think of any of you, and, and I hope I'm right about this, that would, that would cower down and, and hide and let, let, somebody else, let somebody else get hurt so that you don't have to intervene. I hope to God that's not true. Someone, someone tries to come in your house and hurt your family. I don't, none of you men that I know are just going to say, oh, well, okay, yeah. And why, why can't we have that same level of determination when it comes to the reality of spiritual warfare? Because it's real. Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is evil. And there are enemies. And our job, men, is not to be out here judging and fighting the world and fighting people. But in terms of evil and demonic activity and, and the lies and deceptions and the tares that the enemy would like to try to sow in and, and reap destruction into people's lives, I, I'm asking for all of you men to stand up and say, it will have to go past me first. I believe that's right. I believe it's biblical. And, and if, if you can't get there any other way, whose image, men, are we being conformed into? Come on, this is a softball. Say it louder, men. Whose image are we being conformed into? Christ's image, right? Christ, one of the primary ways Christ was given to us to understand is, is as a shepherd. And a shepherd has a staff in his hand, and if a wolf or a bear or whatever comes and thinks they're going to get the sheep, it's going to have to come through the shepherd and deal with the staff. So if, if, you, can't get it, if you can't get there any other way, you're just following in the steps of, I mean, I, we could spend all day, and maybe we should, future men's groups will talk about this more, what, what it means to be a man of God and to be a protector. But at the very simplest baseline, men, if we're going to be, if we're going to walk in this, in this conformed image of Christ, it should not be possible for us to be apathetic about attacks of, of evil trying to come and hurt the family of God, the flock of God. I, I think I heard a woman in the back say amen. Are there any men here that, that could say, yeah, that sounds right? Good. I'm glad. Praise God. May we be a people that are wheat and not, we're not distracted by trying to do the job of the angels and ripping out tares. May, may we do what wheat does. May we grow and may we multiply. And may we be a part of this great harvest that our king is looking to take up. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for this parable of the wheat and the tares. Thank you for explaining it. Oh, Lord. We struggled to get this one right with your explanation. If we didn't have it, we'd have no shot. But I thank you that you know that. <laughs> and, and so you did. And uh, I thank you for the depth of truth found within this parable. There's so much uh, it gives us to think about. And it really helps us, Lord, to understand uh, to some degree why the world is like it is. Uh, for some of us, it, it, it's, a, it's a plaguing question why the tares are allowed to grow, why it seems like evil sometimes goes unchecked. And Lord, we know from other places in your scripture, evil is not unchecked, that you are, you are constantly restraining the, the full potential of evil in the world, that, and you are always working for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. But uh, Lord, help us to, to settle into that reality that the good and the bad, they are growing together. And help us to trust you, Lord. You know, you know when the time is right. You know when the time is right to send those angels to do that great winnowing. And God, help us to focus on being the wheat you've called us to be in the meantime. Uh, help us, Lord, not to 
pridefully uh, think that it's our job to question you as the, the sower and the master of the field. Uh, we are not the reapers. We are not the sorters. We're the wheat, and you've planted us, and you expect uh, fruit from us. You expect there to be a return, and Lord, we want there to be. We want to honor that. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and being patient with us, and thank you for how this parable can help us to navigate uh, the world that we are living in, the reality of how this all really looks. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.